Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. A man in business for himself enjoyed so much success that he had to move to a bigger place. And this move was difficult, but it was nice to have a larger warehouse, nice to have bigger sales office, all these types of things. So on the day of the grand opening, a friend sent him some flowers to celebrate. And sure enough, the order, the order got mixed up at the florist shop. That's how these things happen. And the businessman, he received a a bouquet that was intended for a funeral. It came with a card which read my deepest sympathy during this time of sorrow. Well, when the friend of the businessman found out, he went to see the florist and just to see what had happened. And the florist met him outside the shop and he was upset. And he said to the man, I'm terribly sorry about the mix up with the flowers, but I hope you understand. And don't worry, your situation is not half as bad as the one down at the funeral home. The folks there received your flowers along with your card, which read best wishes in your new location. (laughs) It's not easy to live here. But we're going to be moving to a place perfectly designed for us to live in fellowship with the Creator for all of eternity. That's quite the move. That is quite the move. And the move may be a burden. The move may be difficult. But the new location that we move to is going to be out of this world. Do you guys remember what Jesus said in John 16, 33? He said, in the world you will have tribulation. Not talking about the great tribulation or anything. He's just talking about difficulties. But he said, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You know, that's a simple promise, isn't it? It's a very simple truth that we know very well in the word of God, but it's a glorious promise. There's a great truth there. Even if we go through some tribulation in life, it will be worth it when we get to glory. Now, this morning we are in Revelation chapter 14. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn where we will be seeing a group of believers who will go through more pain and tribulation than any of us will ever experience in this lifetime. These believers will go through the great tribulation itself. But on the other end, they will stand victorious with Jesus Christ and they will sing his praises. Look at it with me. It's fantastic text. It starts out in Revelation 14 by saying, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, Revelation 14 has a special focus that you need to identify in order to correctly understand this text. The final judgments in Revelation are yet to come. They're still yet to come. But Revelation is stepping forward in time and gives us a preview of the end of the Great Tribulation. See, God's wrath is going to start up again in the book of Revelation. God's wrath is going to pour out again in chapters 15 and 16. But first in chapter 14, what do we have? We have several snapshots, snapshots of hope of what will come at the end. Chapter 13 ended, if you remember that that dark, dark picture in chapter 13, that the followers of the Antichrist will be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead 
visible proof to their loyalty of the kingdom of the Antichrist. But then you move into chapter 14 and you're thinking, all right, this is bad. This is very, very bad. How, how much worse can it get? And right away we see some hope because we see the 144,000 faithful followers of the Lamb And John had seen the Antichrist. He had seen the false prophet in chapter 13, pouring out their satanic lies, pouring out their hate, pouring out their deception. And now John sees this this beautiful, gentle lamb of God standing on Mount Zion. What a change from chapter 13. Now John sees the gentle lamb of God. The 144,000 here are the same 144,000 Jewish believers that we saw sealed in Revelation 7. Now, we saw in Revelation 7 that before the trials of the tribulation got too intense, what did we see in the text? God set aside the 144,000 believers for himself. He sealed them with a special mark on their foreheads. He wrote his own name there to show the world that they belong to him and to protect them from the evil one. And as they carried the message of Christ during the dark days of the great tribulation, Now, in chapter 7, we saw that the 144,000 are first mentioned in Revelation. Seen in that chapter at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years of the Tribulation. But here we get to chapter 14 in Revelation, when we get this snapshot of the end of the Tribulation, and they're still intact. Notice it's not 143,999. It's 144,000, all of them still there, still intact, preserved by God through the fearful days of the persecution and standing triumphantly with the Lamb of God on Mount Zion. Now this should be written this way here in verse 1. should say this, having his name and the name of his father, both the son and the father, it should say, written on their foreheads. The 144,000 belong to the Father and the Son. And during the tribulation, during this tribulation, especially the great tribulation, Satan is going to do everything he can to make their lives absolutely miserable. He's going to torment them. He's going to persecute them. He attempts to starve them to death, to deprive them of food, as we saw in the last chapter, and he persecutes them. But here they are, all of them, All of them, not one of them is lost because they'll be protected by God. See, Revelation 14 is giving us the picture of these same Jewish believers of Israel. As they stand in victory at the end of the tribulation, they will stand on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the hill where the temple was built. Now, this is just an example. We've been talking about Bible study methods a lot in this church lately. And this is just what we would call in the English language an example of a prolepsis, where something is anticipating or looking ahead to the time when it's going to be fulfilled. We do this all the time in the English language today. It's nothing different. That's all that's happening in Revelation 14. It's looking ahead, anticipating what is to come in the rest of the book. The vision is looking to the day when Christ will gather the remnant of Israel after the tribulation, when the Son of God returns to the earth. See, the 144,000, they're going to become part of the group that enters into the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. And they'll be a part of fulfilling a great number of Old Testament prophecies that the nation of Israel will one day be restored in the promised land under the Messiah King. 
What do we read in Micah? Micah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, it says, In that day, says the Lord, just one of many passages in the Old Testament that talks about this, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, and those whom I've afflicted, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, so the Lord will reign over them where? In Mount Zion, from now on, even forevermore. When John observed this glorious gathering of saints on Mount Zion, music began to pour forth from heaven around the thrones of God. Pick it up with verse 2. Notice what it says. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. John said he heard a voice from heaven. Some think this means that John was saying that this entire scene was taking place in heaven. I disagree with that position for many reasons. First, when scripture talks about Mount Zion as a figure for heaven, it always, without exception, always adds a qualifier and tells us specifically that it's telling us about heaven. It always says that. Let me show you what I mean. In Hebrews 12, 22, it says this, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. There's the qualifier, the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels. Notice that qualifier, the heavenly Jerusalem without exception. The New Testament identifies when it's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem from above. But we don't have that here in, in Revelation 14. Go back to verse 1. A lamb standing on where? Mount Zion. So if you follow the normal rules of language without a specific qualifier, it's not exegetically viable that this would refer to anything other than Mount Zion in Jerusalem. See, most of the time in the Old Testament, most of the time in the New Testament, when it refers to Mount Zion, just like we saw just now in Micah chapter 4, it's referring to Jerusalem on earth, unless it tells us otherwise. This is the natural meaning given, intended in the text. Second, the text does not say that the 144,000 are in the same place as the singers. It only tells us, it only tells us that they hear the singers and if you look just strictly at the text, there's a notable contrast that is inherent in the passage. So verse 1, John sees the lamb on Mount Zion. Verse 2, he hears a voice from heaven. And if this entire scene is taking place in heaven, then you have to say, then you have to say, think this through. If it's taking place in heaven, if the whole thing is taking place in heaven, then you have to come to the place where you say that either the 144,000 are all dead at this point and in heaven, or that there's a second group in heaven of 144,000 witnesses. But the scripture, the scriptures teach us neither of these points. The scene is on Mount Zion, on earth. But now John hears a voice from above, from heaven. And this beautiful music from heaven is described for us like the voice of many waters, like the voice of the sound of thunder. John heard some of the harps playing. He heard the sound of these beautiful harps. Now in verse 3, these were heavenly singers. They sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders in heaven. But down on earth, no one could learn it except 144,000 who had not died and would still be on earth. 
No one could learn it. Why? Why could no one learn it? Because the meaning of the song was reserved for the ears of these faithful men alone. A new song, what's a new song? It's not just a song that Dan and Patty bring in. It's not just that. Here in Scripture, it means something. A new song has a specific meaning. It celebrates the mighty work of God that comes from the gratitude of the heart. And so John continues in verse 4, and he says, These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. To understand the idea of this text, you need to remember that this is talking about the purity of these men. Because there's a testimony to be maintained for those in Christ. The 144,000 are going to be men. One of the things we have seen in this country is that even during difficult times, people go on with life. People go on with life, even in the hardest of times. And the same is going to be true in the tribulation. But these men will not be getting married because their focus is going to be like, much like Paul, be on serving Christ. Now, one of the things that we hear often, you hear this all the time, you turn on a podcast or you turn on radio, and what do you hear? You hear all the time that about the 144,000 is that they're going to go out and they're going to be preaching the gospel of the kingdom during the tribulation. And they may just do that. They may do that, absolutely. But we don't have a verse that actually tells us that. We don't have a verse that tells us they're going to be preachers of the gospel. Instead, when the Bible is describing them, when it's talking about the 144,000, the focus is instead on their moral purity. And the focus is on the fact that they will not be killed like the other believers in the tribulation. See, that's what Scripture identifies. That's what Scripture marks out as the identifiers of these men. The testimony given by their purity and the sealing of God protecting them from death. They will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They will follow Christ. This is what it's meaning. They'll follow his, Christ and His mission for them no matter where it takes them in life. Redeemed, it says, are purchased from among men. Purchased, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. What is this telling us? This is telling us that the 144,000 are special. They're a special gift to God, unique in the dispensations of God. You're not going to be one of them. I'm sorry to break your heart, but you're not going to be one of the 144,000. There will be others of Israel that will be converted, not quite like them, not like the 144,000, but those of Israel who will come to faith at the Lord's second coming. Think of Zechariah 12:10, And I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, and then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And what do we read from Paul? What do we read in Romans chapter 11? It says, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And it says the 144,000 are going to have no deceit in their mouth without fault before the throne of God. 
That's pretty important. I mean, if you think about the time that they're going to be living in, they're going to be living in a time of intense persecution, intense deception from Satan. And these men, they're going to be sealed. They're going to be empowered by God. And still they're going to be free from deceit because deception. Let's think about this. Let's talk about this. Deception is not the mark of someone that is walking with God. Can you be deceptive and walk with God at the same time? No, you can't. It's not being a representative of the truth. See, this is telling us here that they will reject the lies of the Antichrist. That's what this is really about. They're going to reject the lies of the Antichrist. They're going to reject the satanic deception of their day. These men will stand without fault, meaning their testimony for Christ will be pure before men. Now, let me be clear on this. I do not believe this is telling us that the 144,000 are going to be without sin. That's not the context of the verse. I don't think it's sinless perfection. It says in their mouth, in their mouth was found no deceit. This is telling us that they'll have a lifestyle of steadfast obedience to God. They will rely on God. They will rely on God's grace to keep them from sin, to keep them from the false religion of the Antichrist. They will be known for truth. Wouldn't that be great if Christians all today were known for truth? They'll be known for truth. They'll be without fault and that they will not be insincere or deceptive. God wants us to be the same way, doesn't he? He wants us to be a witness for his truth. Back in the year 1463, members of this little city council of Florence, Italy, decided they needed a monument to enhance the the beauty of their city. Italians like rocks for some reason. I don't know if you've been to our house, we got rocks. Italians seem to like rocks. So they commissioned a sculptor to carve a giant statue to stand in front of the city hall. Now someone had the idea, hey, let's make it a biblical character. In the neoclassical style, an expression of beauty and strength. So they approached a guy by the name of Agostino Deduccio. You got to say it like a good Italian. Deduccio, who agreed to their terms. Now, Duccio went to the quarry and he marked out this big, gigantic 19-foot slab to be cut from the white marble. But he had cut the slab a little bit too thin. He made a mistake. So when it fell, what happened? It left a deep crack, a deep fracture all the way down the one side. Well, the sculptor, he declared that the stone was now useless. It was not something that could be used. So he demanded another, but the city council refused. So the block of marble lay on its side, not just for a week, not just for a month, 38 years it sat there being unused. That's a source of embarrassment right there. It was a source of embarrassment for the whole city. Then in 1501, the city council approached another man, the son of a local official, asking him if he would complete the project. And using the broken slab, this young man was named Michelangelo. You might have heard of him. He was only 26 years old at the time, filled with energy, filled with skill and imagination. And Michelangelo, he locked himself inside the workshop to chisel and polish away on this stone for a few days. It took him three years. And when the work was finished, it took 49 guys, 49 men, five days to bring this statue down to City Hall. Archways in the city streets were torn down. Narrow streets had to be widened just so they could get this stupid thing down the road. People from all across Europe came to see Michelangelo's 14-foot statue. 
Now today this statue is famous and I'm just gonna show you the headshot and I don't want you to Google it because, because <laughs> yeah, it's one of those type of statues where it tells you a little too much. But it's a statue of David relaxing after defeating Goliath. And Michelangelo had taken a massive, a fractured massive waste of rock and turned it into what many consider to be beautiful masterpiece. This is exactly what God's going to do with the 144,000. They will be sealed by God, empowered by God, pure in morality. No lie will be found in them. They will be blameless, meaning no lie will be found. When it comes to speaking the truth, they will be without blemish or spot is what it's really telling us. God is in the habit of using the insignificant and turning it into something for his glory. That's what he does. He wants to do the same thing in your life. If you belong to Christ, you're a part of a special people, a called out people. Right now, God is taking people with fractured lives, ruined lives, and turning them into trophies of his marvelous grace. God marks them out as special. And his purpose for your life, Christian, is to chisel, to chisel, to chisel a little bit away at a time, year after year, working on you, carving you into something glorious for all the world to see so you can have a new song and he will cause us to stand with Jesus Christ in victory. So take your stand, Christians. Let yourself be counted. Look to what Christ is doing because the day is coming when we will stand with Jesus Christ. Let's pick up our text again in verse six. It says this. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. Babylon has fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. There's a big shift here in the text. And John was given a vision of an angel. He tells us that he saw the angel flying in the midst of heaven, which would be more accurately translated here in the text in the sky above the earth. That's how I want you to think about it, in the sky above the earth. See, you got to remember when the scriptures talk about the heavens, you have to identify as you're studying the Bible, is it talking about the sky that would be how it's used in Genesis 7, 11, when it says about the rain that came during Noah's flood, that all the windows of heaven were open. That's what it's talking about. And referring to the extent of the water, verse 19 of Genesis says, all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. So the first heaven is the atmosphere around the earth. The second heaven is what we think of as space. Exodus 32, verse 13, is just one of many, many references that talks about this when it refers to the stars of heaven. And you guys know the third heaven, don't you, from Scripture? When Paul mentioned it in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul also called it paradise. So as you walk through Revelation 14, you have to ask yourself some questions. You have to stop and say, which heaven are we talking about? And just like it was used back in chapter 8, verse 13, the answer is that the meaning is the sky of heaven, not the throne room of God. The angel flying in the heavens of the sky here so that the whole earth could hear him. 
And that's exactly the idea of verse 7. Notice it says he will speak with a loud voice, implying that everyone is going to hear his message. He's going to tell the population alive at the end of the tribulation to fear God, to acknowledge that they are accountable to God. So give him glory, it says. Acknowledge his attributes. Acknowledge who he is. Now this angel had an eternal gospel to preach to the entire population of the earth. Notice that the angel had the message of the everlasting gospel. Now, our first thought, if you're just reading this in the English, is that, well, this must be talking about the gospel of salvation, about eternal life. That's what it must be. Well, we think of the message of salvation. Sometimes if you're thinking about the end times, maybe you're thinking about the gospel of the kingdom that's going to be preached in in the tribulation. But I want you to notice something with me. I want you to notice that the angel had the mission of sharing this everlasting gospel, preaching it to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now, a common interpretive mistake is to look at this and see it as a message of salvation. But here is where we need to dig deeper and be better students of the word of God. Most of us know that gospel simply just means good news. So we have to ask some questions. What good news could we be talking about in this text? And do the scriptures ask this question? Do the scriptures really teach that it's the role of the angels to fly around and preach the gospel of salvation? Because I don't see any other verses that teach me that. Or is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ the work and mandate of the people of God? I would suggest it is. This is one of these places where the context is driving our whole understanding. And the context is telling us that this cannot be about eternal salvation. This is a message about judgment and condemnation. Judgment and condemnation. But we don't have to be left guessing. Look at verse 7. It tells us the message. Let the word of God interpret itself. Verse 7 tells you, fear God and give glory to him. Why? For the hour of his judgment has come. This is another reason we know that this is a snapshot of the end of the tribulation. Because this angel is telling every tribe and tongue and people on the earth this message of judgment. The eternal message spoken of here is a message of God's righteousness and judgment. Not a message of eternal salvation. But the good news that God is in his righteousness, is about to establish his sovereign rule over the entire world. That's good news when that day comes, because this is going to be in total contrast. Just like the truth now is in total contrast to what you hear out in the media, it's going to be in total contrast when Christ comes back to the new false religion that's going to be ushered in under the Antichrist. So this is why verse 6 said it will be the everlasting gospel, the good news of God's message of judgment upon the new religion of the false prophet. The everlasting gospel is describing what will happen on earth at the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 is calling the people to worship him. Because when people refuse the authority of God and when people set themselves up as the authority over God, he has the right to judge them. God has the right to judge his people. And verse 8 fits so beautifully with this. It says, and another angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Again, 
It's looking ahead to what we're about to be taught in detail in chapter 18 about this city, Babylon. So let's go ahead and take the time to read it. After these things, it says in Revelation 18, after these things, I saw another angel coming down. And if you're studying this, you should put a note right in Revelation 14 with a big arrow that says Revelation 18, because that's what it's looking ahead to. Look at it. It says, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Sound familiar, doesn't it? Sounds familiar. And has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit. Now you see why they got to be judged. And a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Chapter 14 is looking ahead to this text. You should be able to see the connection. So fallen is repeated back in chapter 14. Because why? When it repeats something in scripture, it's a point of emphasis. This is something worth celebrating. Babylon. Let's talk about Babylon for a little bit. Babylon, sometimes it's used to refer to a literal city. Sometimes you see that in scripture. Sometimes it's used to refer to a political system. Sometimes it refers to a religious system. It all starts with that evil character of the ancient city of Babylon. We have to look carefully at the wording. So what do we read in verse 8? It says specifically what? That great city. It tells us. It tells us. This reference is a city that falls which again, we know from the broader teaching of the book of Revelation, it's not going to come until the end of the tribulation. This is prophetically giving us a glimpse of the end of the tribulation, which Revelation is going to come back to in the later chapters. So track this carefully with me. I mentioned this last week, that there is evidence specifically in chapter 17 of Revelation that the apostate church of the first half of the tribulation is going to end The apostate church of the first three and a half years of the tribulation will come to an end half of the way through the tribulation. It's referred to as the mystery Babylon the Great in chapter 17. This apostate church, Babylon the Great, will be destroyed half of the way through the tribulation because the apostate church is going to be turned into the worship of the Antichrist by the false prophet. But that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about. The destruction of the city of Babylon will not take place until the end of the Great Tribulation. That is the context all throughout this passage, a prophetic snapshot of the end of the Tribulation and the beginning of the millennium. This is the reference here, a literal city that will fall at a literal time, prophetically, at the end of the Great Tribulation, the second coming of Jesus Christ. But why? Why must this happen? Well, verse 8 tells us. It says it right there. Because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. See, Babylon's going to be the center of all the ungodliness in the world during the tribulation. The meaning is that the nations who participate in the spiritual corruption that comes from this city of Babylon, 
They will share in her condemnation. They will share in her judgment at the second coming of Christ. God's judgment upon this city is meant to bring comfort to his people. God's judgment upon this lost and dying and depraved world is meant to bring us comfort. Because the people of God at this time, during the tribulation, they're going to be able to look at Revelation chapter 14. They're going to be able to look at this text and realize that the time of her judgment is at hand. The time of the judgment of Babylon will be coming. God is going to put away once and for all this false, depraved worship of man. There's a third angel that we see starting in verse 9. It says... Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. This is a strong text. This is a difficult text. I hope you're wrestling with it. It's a judgment about those who will worship the beast in his image. This is another connecting point from chapter 13. Those who take the mark of the beast are those who are rejecting Christ. They will be the object of God's wrath, destined for eternal torment. See, if you want to drink of the wine of spiritual fornication, you're also going to get the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. That's what it's telling us. Notice the reference in verse 10. People add water to wine to dilute it, but God is not going to weaken his punishment of those who will worship the beast. It says their torment is going to be excruciating. This is the wrath of God, untempered by the mercy and grace of God. Powerful, powerful wording here. He shall be tormented with fire and and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. I think it could be better translated here at the sight of Christ or in the view of Christ. Meaning that Christ and his angels will see the suffering of those who rejected him. They're going to see it. We would like to talk all the time as Christians about the grace and mercy of God, but let us never forget the wrath and the judgment of God that will come upon those who reject the Savior. Because the righteousness of God demands that those without the righteousness of Christ in them must be judged. Their torment is not short-lived. So let some liberal theologian come along and try to tell you that there is no eternal punishment because what does it say? It says forever and ever. It literally says in the text, into the ages of ages. The strongest Greek expression that there is of eternity. They will have no rest day or night. See, regardless of what people say, the lake of fire will be an eternal torment. There will be no escape. The beast is going to kill those who do not follow him. But those who follow the beast will receive worse judgment from God. Verse 12 tells us this. It says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The same warning of scripture against those who will dare to worship the beast will also be a great encouragement to the tribulation saints that are living during this time in the great tribulation with faith in Christ. Many, 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 many people are going to die for their faith. 
Many are going to die for their faith. Others are going to need to run and hide for their lives. There's going to be an incredible need for patience on, the, on behalf of the saints at this time, endurance during this time, because these tribulation saints are assured here in this text that even though they may suffer for a few years, their end, their end, even suffering in the tribulation will be far better than those who accept the easy way out and worship the beast. During the great tribulation, the saints of God are going to need patience as they live out the commandments of God, living in trust of the Savior and his return to this earth. Shortly after the Korean War, a young Korean woman had an affair with an American soldier and she ended up getting pregnant. He came back to the United States and sure enough, she never saw him again. Well, she gave birth to a beautiful little girl and this little girl, she looked different. Of course she did. She looked different than the other kids in Korea. She had light hair. It was curly. It was different. And in that culture, if you were of a mixed race, you were going to have a tough time in the community. Many women would kill their children because they didn't want their kids to face this type of rejection. But this woman, she refused to do that. She tried to raise her little girl as best as she could. So for seven years, seven years, she tried to raise this child as best as she could until the rejection was just too much. She did something that none of us in this room would ever do, could ever imagine doing. She abandoned this little girl to the streets. Now, this little girl was ruthlessly taunted by people. They called her the ugliest word in the Korean language, tuki, which means alien devil. Can you imagine telling a child that? Alien devil. Well, it didn't take long for this little girl to draw conclusions about herself based on the way people were treating her. For two years, she lived on the streets until finally she made her way to an orphanage. And one day, word came that a couple from America was going to adopt not a little girl, but a little boy. Well, all the children in the orphanage got so excited by this because at least one little boy was going to have hope. He was going to go and have a family. So this little girl spent the day cleaning up the little boys. That's what she had to do. Clean up the little boys, give them baths, comb their hair, and wondering, wondering to herself which one of these boys would be adopted by the American couple. Well, the next day the couple came, and this is what this girl remembered from that day, and I'm quoting. She said, it was like Goliath had come back to life. I saw the man with his huge hands lift up each and every baby. I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own, and I saw tears running down his face, and I knew if he could, they'd take, they would have taken the whole lot of them with them, and he saw me out of the corner of his eyes. And let me tell you, she wrote, I was nine years old, but I didn't even weigh 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body. I had lice in my hair. I had boils all over me. I was full of scars. I was not a pretty sight. But the man came over to me and began rattling away something in English. And I looked up at him. Then he took this huge hand that he had and laid it on my face. And what was he saying? He was saying, I want this child. This child is for me. This is our story. This is our story because we were wasting away in sin. 
We were wasting away in sin, eaten up by the worms of self-indulgence and full of scars. But our Heavenly Father came along, laid his hand on our face and said, I want this child, this child is for me. And then he paid a high price to rescue us from our sin. He let his only son suffer and die on the cross to pay the price of our redemption. And so now we belong to him. We've been purchased. And so when we think of the fate of those who will take the mark of the beast, I want you to sit and be thankful for the grace of God in your life. When we think of the judgment to come, I want you to look at your position in Jesus Christ, your identity as a child of God, and start to understand from the scriptures what we're talking about. And when you stop and think of what all these beautiful tribulation saints are going to go through, be thankful, Christian, that you live here now in this time. Be thankful. His grace is matchless. His power is endless. And his love for us is eternal. The older I get, when I think about heaven, I realize that much of me is already there. My name's written there. My citizenship is written there. My God is there. My Savior's there. My inheritance is there. I have a lot of loved ones there. So much of me is already there that at times I'm starting to become homesick for heaven. Soon his promises to us will be fulfilled. We'll be in our father's house. We're going to get new bodies. We won't have to worry about getting sick. COVID-19 is a thing of the past in that day. We won't have to worry about getting old or sick ever again. All the aches and pains of life are going to be gone. But Jesus tells us to trust his promises. Follow the example of these witnesses in the book of Revelation, known for the truth, known for integrity, known for following the Messiah, Jesus Christ, known for purity, known for always following Jesus. Let that sink in. Known for always following Jesus. Living for him, serving others, without reproach, obedient to God, pure in their relationship with others. They're going to be surrounded by deception and lies, and still they're going to be known for their integrity. A living testimony of God's amazing grace. This is the type of life that the world needs, not just then. The world needs it now, today. Because when you give in to sin, when you live your life in compromise, just like the lost, just like the world around you, then you have no credible message for those who are confused and lost in corruption. See, when you go out and lie and, and live like a heathen, you have nothing to say. How you live matters. And if your mouth is constantly known for deception or building up yourself or promoting yourself, if your life is just like the world, then why should anyone believe you when it comes to the truth of Jesus Christ? So let me leave you with this question. Is your lifestyle an unspoken testimony of God's grace? Because I believe God's most effective witnesses are those who are saved, sealed, and walking in the light of Christ, set apart for God and willing to be a light to a dark and corrupt world. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com.
Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.